Section 65 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 65. Social and Economic Conditions of the Roman Empire in the 4th Century. By Paul Vinogradov. Part 2. The same kind of evolution from free intercourse to compulsion may be observed in the legislation on commercial and industrial corporations. Roman law passed through several stages in this respect. At the time of the Republic, guilds of artisans and merchants could be formed by private agreement if their statutes and activity did not infringe on the laws of the state. Gaius in Digests, Volume 47, Chapter 22, Section 4 during the civil conflicts of the last years of the Republic and in the early Empire, organized corporations were several times dissolved and forbidden on account of the political agitation carried on by their members. And from Augustus's time, concession by the Senate and confirmation by the Prince had to be applied for when a new college or guild had to be formed. But police supervision by the state did not alter the main feature of the corporations namely their spontaneous origin in the needs of society and the wish of private persons to carry on profitable trade and to form unions for mutual support and social intercourse. The imperial government was often inclined to repress these spontaneous tendencies, as we may gather, e.g., from Trajan's correspondence with Pliny. The first indication of a further change in the relations between government and corporations may be noticed in the reign of Alexander Severus. This emperor, instead of restricting the rise of trade guilds, actually favored the formation of corporations of wine merchants, grocers, shoemakers, and other crafts. Lampiridius, Alexander Severus, Chapter 33 we may suspect that at this time, that in the second quarter of the third century, the government began to perceive a slackening in the energy of trade and commerce and chose to exert its authority in patronizing trade guilds. The restoration of imperial power under Aurelian brought about another and more powerful attempt in the same direction. One of the measures of this emperor was the assumption of a wide-reaching guardianship over the alimentation of Rome. The supply of corn from Egypt was increased, lists of paupers, proletarii, entitled to be fed by the state were drawn up, and the privilege of living at the cost of the commonwealth was made hereditary. Instead of corn, bread was distributed, and along with bread, oil, salt, and pork. In connection with this system of alimentation of the poorer classes in Rome, Aurelian reorganized the service of the merchants responsible for the transport of corn on the Nile and on the Tiber. This throws light on the immediate reason for the transformation of corporations in the ensuing age. Trades and crafts which had a bearing on vital needs of social intercourse were taken under the tutelage of the empire and carried on thenceforth not as free professions but as compulsory services. This is clearly seen in the legislation of Constantine and remains characteristic of the legal treatment of trade during the whole of the 4th and of the 5th century. In the Lex Iulia of 747 UC, 
enacted by Augustus, the principle was already formulated that a combination of individual workmen or traders into a college had to be warranted not only by their wishes and interests, but by public utility. The public element assumes now a preponderating influence. Bakers are authorized to form a craft guild not because they see an advantage in being organized in this way, but because the state wants their services in regulating the trade in bread and providing for the needs of the inhabitants of cities. The result of this enlisting of trades and crafts into public service is a system entirely at variance with our conceptions of supply and demand and of economic intercourse. To begin with, all freedom in the choice of professions came to an end. Corporations are required to hold their members to their occupations all through life. All attempts of single members to leave their place of abode and customary work are considered as a flight from duty and severely forbidden. In 395 e.g., Arcadius and Honorius decree heavy fines against powerful people who conceal and protect fugitive members of Curiae and Collegia. For each one of the latter, the patron has to pay a fine of a pound of gold. Codex Theodosianus, Volume 12, Chapter 1, Section 147. The codices are full of enactments against fugitives of this kind, and such legislation would prove by itself that a regime of caste was being gradually established in the empire. It is certain that the invasions of barbarians, such as those of Alaric, for example, contributed powerfully to scatter the working population. But apart from these, one of the motives of flight was the heavy burden of taxation. It is probable that the initiative in regard to the measures of stern compulsion came not from the bureaucrats of the empire, but from the corporations themselves, which were made liable to the requirements of the state in case of the flight of their members. Of course, the consistent enforcement of such a policy actually blocked the natural selection of professions and the development of independent enterprise. Let us, to take a concrete example, attend somewhat closer to the discipline imposed on the important college of Naviculari. During the first two centuries of our era, the term designated all ship owners engaged in carrying trade by sea. Gradually, it came to mean shippers employed by the state for the transport of goods, especially of corn. Most of the corn necessary for the population of Rome was derived from Egypt and Africa, and we hear of a large fleet starting from Alexandria for the purpose of carrying over the supply. There is good evidence to show that during the second century AD, the college was composed of men who had joined it as voluntary members and sought the privileges which were conceded to it in return for its services to the state. All this appears changed in the 4th century. The Naviculari are to devote themselves primarily to the transport of goods belonging to the state, more particularly corn and oil for Rome and Constantinople, while African Naviculari were bound to bring wood for fuel to the public baths of Rome. The Egyptian Naviculari received their cargo from the collectors of the Annona, the corn tribute in the province. The season for the voyages of their ships was reckoned from the 1st of April to the 15th of October, 
the other months being held free on account of stormy weather. Each Navicularius had to send his ships to the fleet once in two years. When the ship weighed anchor, it had to proceed by the shortest route and not stop anywhere without absolute necessity. Should one of the ships of the corn fleet be delayed in a port, the governor and senate of the place were bound, if necessary, to use force in order to send the merchants out to sea again. Outside these official journeys, they had the right to move on their own behalf, but evidently their right did not outweigh the uncomfortable limitations imposed on them during their service period, as we find the emperors endeavoring in every way to keep the naviculari to their task and to prevent them from slipping out of the college. A curious letter of St. Augustine tells how the bishop refused to accept the bequest of a certain Bonifacius, an African navicularius, on behalf of the See of Hippo. Bonifacius had disinherited his son and wanted to pass over his property to the church. St. Augustine refuses to accept the gift because he does not wish to entangle the church with the dealings of the naviculari. In case of shipwreck, the government would order an inquiry, the sailors rescued from the wreck would be put to torture, the church would have to pay for the lost cargo, etc. The members of the college evidently had to be rich men, and sometimes, if there were gaps to be filled, the state would compel rich men to join the corpus naviculariorum. The service was hereditary, and if any member absconded, his property was forfeited to the college. These facts may be sufficient to show to what extent the commerce of those days suffered under the stringent discipline imposed by the requirements of the state, and what a queer mixture of a businessman and of an official a shipowner of those days was. I may add that, although we know most about naviculari, bakers, purveyors of pork, and similar merchants engaged in supplying the capitals with food, the provisioning of the smaller towns and the management of all crafts and trades were carried on more or less similar principles. An important chapter in the history of the decline and fall of the empire is constituted by the gradual decay of municipal institutions. The ancient world took a long time to exchange its organization of free cities for that of a great power, governed by a centralized bureaucracy. Even after the conquest of its provinces, the Roman Commonwealth remained substantially a confederation of cities, and municipal autonomy prospered for a long while. We see the cities of the 1st and 2nd centuries vying one with the other in local patriotism, in the munificence of leading citizens, in generous contributions of private men towards the welfare of poor classes, public health and order. The economic progress brought about by the establishment of the empire made itself felt primarily in the increased activity and prosperity of city life. But threatening symptoms begin to appear even in the 2nd century AD. Municipal self-government, bereft of its political significance, restricted to the sphere of local interests and local ambitions, is apt to degenerate into corrupt and spendthrift practices. The wealthier provincial citizens ruin themselves by lavish expenditure on pageants and distributions. Municipal enterprise in matters of building and philanthropy often turns out to be extravagant and inefficient. The emperors find no other means of remedying such defects 
than the institution of curators of different kinds, curatores rei publicae, curatores calendarii, commissioners for the correction of the condition of free cities, at corrigendum statum liberarum civitatum. In the correspondence between Pliny and Trajan, the imperial commissioner is already seen to interfere in the most minute questions of city administration, and at the same time, he is constantly applying for direction to his imperial master. The ideal of centralization is clearly expressed in this intimate intercourse of two well-meaning and talented statesmen. The emperor appears in the light of an omniscient and all-powerful providence watching over all the dealings and doings of his innumerable subjects. In order to embody such an ideal, the central power had to surround itself with helpers and executive officers, and Hadrian laid the foundations of a civil service more comprehensive and better organized than the rudimentary administrative institutions of the Commonwealth and of the early Empire. Later on, Diocletian and Constantine multiplied the number of bureaucratic organs and combined them into one whole by the bands of constant supervision and iron discipline. But even before this ultimate completion of bureaucracy in the 4th century, in the very beginnings of this system of central tutelage, a kind of a vicious circle formed itself. Central authority was called upon to interfere on account of the deplorable defects of municipal administration, while municipal life was disturbed and atrophied by the constant interference from above. It is impossible to say precisely what was cause and what was effect in this case. The process was, as it happens in many diseases, a constant flow of action and reaction. The jurists of the third century find already a characteristic formula for corporative town organization in an analogy with the condition of a minor under tutelage, and this analogy is followed up into all sorts of particulars as to rights and duties. No wonder that for many citizens municipal life loses its interest, that they try to eschew the burdens of unremunerated and costly local administration, and that as early as the time of the Severi, compulsion has sometimes to be used to bring together a sufficient number of unwilling magistrates and members of municipal senates. Digests 51.38.6 and 52.2.8 A circumstance which in itself would have hardly been sufficient to overthrow municipal organization certainly contributed to divert people's minds from the customary trend of local patriotism and to make the performance of certain duties difficult. I mean the spread of Christianity. Municipal institutions were intertwined with cults of Roman and local gods, including religious devotion to the deity of the emperors. The new faith, on the other hand, did not admit of sacrifices or prayer to the false gods of heathendom, hence a conflict which did not admit of a ready solution. Let us listen to the somewhat exaggerated statement of Tertullian. We concede, he says, that a Christian may without endangering salvation assume the honor and title of public functions, if he does not offer sacrifices nor authorize sacrifices, if he does not furnish victims, 
If he does not entrust anybody with the upkeep of temples, if he does not take part in the management of their income, if he does not give games either at his own or at the public expense, if he does not preside at them, if he does not announce or arrange any festival, if he avoids all kinds of oath and abstains while exercising power from giving sentence in regard to the life and the honor of men, decisions as to money matters being accepted, if he does not proclaim edicts, nor act as a judge, nor put people into prison or inflict torture on them. But is all this possible? As a matter of fact, the heathen state did certainly not go out of its way to make all these exceptions possible, and conflicts between law and religious conviction arose every day. On many occasions Christians of a softer mold submitted to what they considered to be inevitable, and performed most of the duties challenged by the fiery African. The church had to work out a penitentiary code for those among its members who had sullied themselves by heathen practices, see e.g. the canons of the Synod of Elvira in Spain. Sometimes again, the more firm among the Christians made a stubborn stand and were martyrized for their protest as enemies of the Roman state. Altogether, there can be no doubt that the inherent contradiction between Christian religion and the pagan practices of municipal life did put an extra strain on the latter, and could not but increase the disorder which was setting in. The bold step taken by Constantine in recognizing Christianity as a state religion saved the situation to some extent, but it could not do away at a stroke with all the pagan elements of municipal life. The strife between religions assumed a new aspect, and as the vital connection between local self-government and local cults was never restored, that unity of conception which marked antiquity when at its best had to be replaced by a deep dualism tending towards new solutions of political and moral problems. The greatest representative of conquering Christianity, St. Augustine, recognizes the defeat of the material world of antiquity, and has to fashion his ideals according to a scheme of two cities, in which only the heavenly one appeals to his devotion and energy. Apart from this complication arising out of peculiarities of religious history, the middle class of the citizens was undergoing a transformation similar to that of the merchants and craftsmen. When the chaotic conditions of the second half of the third century were arrested by the statesmanship and military power of Aurelian and Diocletian, the policy of compulsion was brought to bear with full weight on the well-to-do inhabitants of cities. They were mostly not only house owners in our sense, but also owners of lands in the vicinity of the towns, although distinctions which it is somewhat difficult for us at the present time to formulate in detail were drawn between them and the possessores, or landowners properly so called. However, the bulk of the well-to-do townsmen was considered as a separate class, the curiales, out of which the actual members of city senates, the decuriones, as well as its executive officials and justices were selected. Yet the connection between the curiales group and the actual office holders was so close, there were so few members of the former who had not to serve in one way or the other, that the enactments of the codes currently confused the two distinct terms, curiales and decuriones.
This confusion of itself points to the overburdening of the middle class in the towns with service, and we find indeed that its members are compelled to take over, without salary, the various personal munera, or charges, of local government, to administer the town, to act as petty justices, to take part in deputations, to arrange games, to inspect public buildings, to provide fuel for baths, to superintend postal and transport service, cursus publicus, to collect rates, etc. The most burdensome of their obligations were connected with the collection of taxes. They were chiefly responsible for assessing the town population, and out of their number were selected the inspectors of public stores, horia, and the decem primi, the caprotoi, who had to collect the land tax and the tribute in kind, annona. Both heathen and Christian authors testify to the crushing burden of taxation during the 4th and 5th centuries, and the unfortunate curiales, who were made the instruments of collection under the watchful and extortionate supervision of state officials, were not only suffering from the unpopularity of their functions, but had constantly to fall back on their own resources in order to make good deficiencies and arrears. The decem primi were primarily responsible as collectors, and when they vacated their office, they had to nominate their successors and to stand security for their good behavior. Not content with this, the provincial authorities commonly made the town, that is primarily the town senate, curia, liable for deficiencies in the full sum required. The emperor sometimes intervened to forbid such collective liability. Codex Theodosianus 11.72, Codex Justiniani 11.59.16. But on other occasions they enforced it in the most sweeping manner, as for instance when Aurelian, and later on Constantine, decreed that the town senates, ordines, should be made responsible for the taxes of deserted estates, and in case they should be unable to support the burden, it should be distributed among the various local districts and estates. Codex Justiniani, 1159-1 In consequence of such oppressive burdens laid on the curiales, we witness the curious spectacle of widely spread attempts on the part of the citizens to escape into more privileged professions, into the clergy or the army, and even of their flight into the country, where they were sometimes glad to live and work as simple coloni. The Codex Theodosianus and the Codex Justinianus are full of enactments forbidding the curiales to leave the place of their birth, condemning them to a hereditary subjection to municipal charges, munera, in fact turning their condition into a kind of serfdom. All the sons of a curialis had to follow their father's career. They were deemed curiales from the date of their birth. Codex Theodosianus 12, 1, 122. If there was not a sufficient number of persons of this class to uphold all its obligations, owners of estates, possessores, denizens, incoli, well-to-do plebeians were pressed into it. The wretched townspeople were suspected of wanting to escape by flight from their onerous condition and had to apply to the governor for special leave of absence when they left the place of their birth for the sake of business or travel. 
If one of them wanted to change permanently his place of abode, he was bound to provide a substitute or to leave a great part of his fortune to the curia. This epoch of imperial legislation does away for fiscal and administrative purposes with some of the fundamental principles of Roman law in its better times. A curialis, though a Roman citizen in the exercise of full civil rights, is enabled freely to bequeath his fortune to another Roman citizen belonging to a different city. Property passing out of the jurisdiction of one curia into that of another is charged with a heavy special payment to the former senate, and in fact remains, quote-unquote, obnoxious to it. Codex Theodosianus 12, 1, 107. A later constitution enacted that at least one-fourth of the property should remain in the hands of the original curia. If a curialis wanted to sell land or slaves employed in the cultivation of his estate, he had to obtain leave from the governor of the province. Codex Theodosianus 12.3.1 Harrises were much hampered in the right to marry strangers outside their late father's curia, and had in such cases to relinquish one-fourth part of their property. The climax of this legislation of servitude is reached when the emperors actually condemn people for some crime or misdemeanor to be enrolled as members of a curia. Sons of veterans, e.g., who by chopping off their fingers had rendered themselves unfit to serve in the army, were stuck into the curia, and the same fate awaited unworthy ecclesiastics. End of section 65